Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, focused compounding in quarantine on air with my co-founder, Jeffrey Gannett. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going for you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time you're tuning with us, either on YouTube or through the podcast, uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you're watching us on YouTube, uh, feel free to thumbs us up. Leave us a couple comments. Uh, like I've said in the past, we are making, uh, or I'm making a case to answer every single comment that comes through there. Uh, Mondays going forward is going to be our dedicated Q&A day. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll always tweet out a question or, or call for questions on Twitter during the day, uh, but also I will queue any question from YouTube, from the comment section that people will want us to go over. So leave us a bunch of comments on any questions you have, and then I'll pull those and then we'll answer them the following Monday. Uh, so in today's video, Jeff, or podcast, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about hedging, a little bit about the news, um, and a little bit about what's going on in the world today. Um, so the market closed up 3.48%. Um, again today, Jeff. So I guess everything uh, is not different this time, and we're on our ways back up to all-time highs. How do you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, it might be true. Look at that chart you have there. It certainly looks like what uh, what we saw uh, in 2019. Yeah, so that I mean, that's what it pretty much looks like. And you know, it's so interesting because you hear people talk about bear market rallies a lot, right, Jeff? And mm -hmm. they always say how vicious it, it, like these rallies can be. So what I did was I was just genuinely curious. And I went back to, I had to use the Dow. Uh, yeah. I had, I went back and looked at the, the, the depression. So we're back in yeah. 1929. And I don't know why you could barely see this on this website. I don't know if it's, uh -huh. they're trying to go with like the, I don't know what it is quite honestly, maybe the data, <laughs> I don't know. But you could see what, what I thought was interesting is the market in 1929, so this is depression time, it fell, right, from, this is the Dow Jones, from let's call it 380-ish, 381-ish, all the way down to, I don't know what the lowest, maybe we'll call it 200. And then over the following six months, the market rallied almost about 50% back mm -hmm. up before ultimately you know, crashing down. And of course we don't, you know, put too much emphasis on charts or anything like that or any emphasis on it. The reason why I was really just interested to go back and look is because, you know, you could learn a lot about, I guess, psychology and stuff like that from the charts. And I, I found that incredibly fascinating, right? So how people probably thought, oh, you know, it's different this time. We're on our way back up. And then the market just got, you know, decimated for the next, like what, three years. Um, and, you know, I guess when sitting here and thinking, and of course we know that we don't know, but when, because we don't want to, you know, time the market or anything, we're just focusing on businesses. I'm really taking a top-down approach to this, and I'm just taking into the way I'm thinking about this, is all these other times when, quote-unquote, is it different this time? There wasn't really a massive fundamental shift in the economy, right, mm -hmm. where there was true fear of a real recession that could possibly happen, right? And you could see mm -hmm. that through the unemployment numbers and everything going on currently. It's all real stuff, right? Where in all these other maybe pullbacks, they were just, I guess, pullbacks of the market. I don't remember exactly what caused it, um, you know, but the actual fundamentals of the United States didn't necessarily change, I guess you could say, right, with the economy. But this fall, I do think is different because of the way that everything has happened, the unemployment numbers, um, 
you know, and everything that's going on within the world and how businesses are being affected, right? Take the market out of it. Just talk about the businesses themselves. I mean, every single day that we've had on this podcast, we're talking about a new company that either A, is not paying their landlords, B, is laying off a bunch of employees. I mean, when we were talking about the... uh, um, Fertita guy yesterday, Jeff, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, 45,000 employees or f- four load them or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. 40, yeah. 45,000. That was not going on in this drawdown or this drawdown, or if you want to call this a drawdown, right? Mm-hmm. So the actual economy, the fundamentals, I guess the top down approach to everything, it's truly changed. And, you know, obviously a lot of people are I don't know what a lot of people are thinking. I mean, if you look at the market every single day, we're continuing to go up. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's just been it's been a fascinating case study. And I just thought it was interesting to go back and see, you know, pass massive shocks to the system and what happened. And in 1929, I don't know what peak to trough this is. I think the numbers have got to be close to what we've had uh this year, hmm. if not maybe a little bit more, but then you rallied for the next six months. It looks like, you know, fifty percent of that before proceeding to fall for the next couple of years. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So in terms of volatility, th- this is in terms of daily volatility, up or down days, the size of them on average, uh, we're pretty close to four to five percent per day. It's been the average for a while, up or down. Um, that only happened in 1929. It's never happened any other time. So there's never been another period like this, except 1929. Um, And then in terms of whether things are really happening with the economy and stuff, uh, if you take the numbers from the weekly jobs that we get, um, numbers, we can just take those and put them in, assuming other things don't change with unemployment. Other things will change. There'll be differences in labor force um, participation and stuff. But you put those aside, you we're already over 10% unemployment yeah. uh, as of last week. So we're already past where you would be in a lot of recessions. Um, and you're starting from a similar point to where you'd be in plenty of other recessions. So our, our unemployment rate was, I guess, what, three and a half percent or something before this started. Um, that's pretty similar to what's happened in some bad recessions that you were at three to 4% unemployment. And then you went over 10%. That's happened a couple times, and it's kind of the periods we've talked about before, whether that's 2008 or going back to the end of the 1920s or whatever. You're usually at the bottom in terms of the lowest unemployment you've ever seen and things like that. Um, yeah, it's different from the periods that you're highlighting there in this bull market. I mean, it, I think people understand that. On the other hand, there have been some surveys and stuff that show interesting things. So we see... Um, in general, surveys have been showing very high amounts of, uh, I don't know if you would call it pessimism or what exactly, very high amounts of people saying they've lost their job, uh, someone in their house has lost their job, their pay has been cut, stuff like that, but that they expect things to be better in a year. Um, CNBC did a survey where uh, slightly more than half of all people said they expect the economy to be better within a year. That's actually a very high number compared to what it normally is. And that's even with a lot of people saying that they're out of a job and stuff. The other thing that was interesting about that survey is that only, I think, 1% of people said they expect to lose their job in the next few weeks. That seems very low. And uh, less than 10% said they expect to have a pay cut soon. Again, that seems very low. So I'm not sure what that's all about. But um, but you had numbers that made sense in terms of the unemployment. We've already seen stuff. 
of how many people said that they have lost their job and stuff. So people are obviously expecting a um, things to be very bad now, but then a recovery within about a year, they'll be really good, which could happen. So basically like a, um, a V-shaped kind of thing like we're talking about, that seems to be people's uh, optimism and the confidence levels. And those confidence levels are very important because it determines a lot of what will happen uh, when we do get things back to normal. Uh, the, the big thing about how long a recession will last has a lot to do with how confident businesses are and households are once things start uh, up again. How confident they are, for instance, that there won't be a repeat in the fall or something like that. How confident they are to not have to hold on to cash, but to spend it, things like that. Mm-hmm. And that will determine a lot about the length of recession. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, too, how much the narrative has shifted. And look, I'm not here to be a baron. I mean, right, we're a long only fund. I mean, you know, we invest long only. So it's not like I'm talking my book or anything like that. I'm just really just trying to understand this clear disconnect. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to have any confirmation I mean, bias come in because I think, you know, it's going to be worse in the near term. But I mean, what do you do, right? If you just focus on buying cheap businesses, then, it, you know, we're not even having this conversation, right? Yeah, I think anytime you drop this far, you go up no matter what. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of times in history where you've dropped this far and not gone back up. So it's just a psychological thing, whether it has any connection to the fundamentals or not. I, I honestly can't think of any time in the history of the U.S. stock market that stocks have fallen that but well, the stocks have never fallen that far that fast. But in any case, I can think of no matter what's going on in the world, if you fall that far, you do go back up just because. Um, people take the opportunity to buy stuff. And, and there could be some other reasons too. But, uh, you know, it certainly looks like a bargain to people when that happens. So I just, I really can't think of any case where you don't have some, uh, you don't have some coming back up immediately when you drop that far. Um, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me to see that, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I just thought it was interesting. And going back to see, um, you know, what the market did, near the depression. And yeah. I mean, look, you had a 50% retracement back up. And then from there, the market sold off for the next three years. So I just thought that was interesting to take a look at. Yeah. And if you go back to that, I don't know if you have that, but one thing that's really interesting is that, so one, so a few things that are different. One, individual investors were using much, much more leverage. Okay. So there's very high leverage. It was very common to use, uh, be, have, um, I mean, some people were had, owned about $10 in stocks for every $1 of their own equity they were putting in. So um, it it was, uh, you know, dramatic that way. And that contributes to some of it. But the thing that was really interesting is if you look at most um, of the like successful value type investors, people who are most similar to people like Ben Graham, uh, their problems were not what happened in 1929. Their problems were what happened at the last stage, especially what happened in like the middle-ish period of 1932 right there. That's the problem. They thought things looked really, really cheap in the uh, beginning of like 1932 and were starting to buy and stuff. And then there were some big declines still. So there were a lot of people who were like that. I, I mean, there were uh, Graham would have been probably pretty heavily hedged and stuff at the moment that things happened in 1929. But that still didn't matter. Um, now, again, a lot of people then were using um, margin, even uh, uh when they were making sort of pretty conservative investments and stuff, they're using a lot of margin. It took the end of the 1920s to stop people from using margin heavily. Um, and it would, and then it would be out of favor for a long time after that. 
but that's a big difference from then to today. Uh, th- there's plenty of things with debt and stuff now, but it's not in the stock market. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then the other thing is just like I said, I mean, although people know from listening to the podcast that I'm more pessimistic, I to say about the economy than most people are, or that the, than the market uh, response lately has been, but we've just dropped so much that I don't want to say like it hasn't been a, a huge decline. It was a very big decline. So it's not uh, that surprising that you have a big uh, comeback up after that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, uh, yeah, I just thought that uh, was interesting. Anyways, uh, we can go over the Focus Compound Daily. Of course, if you want to get access to this, you can either follow me on Twitter. It gets tweeted out every day at 3 o'clock, or I'm sorry, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, 3 o'clock Central. Or you could join uh, the email list at focuscompounding.com. And um, I mean, you know, this kind of fits the narrative of what we're talking about, Jeff. This was something that was interesting today. Near Nearly a third of U.S. apartment renters didn't pay April rent. And, um, you know, that was, um, you know, I thought that was interesting and it would be, you know, interesting to see what happens next month. Um, but a third of individuals, and this was something that I think not a lot of people were talking about and I don't have the exact figure here, but I remember reading a couple weeks ago, I think it was $81 billion is due in rent a month. And, uh, you know, if people don't have the stimulus checks, in their um, you know bank accounts, which they should by next month, right? Um, mm. You know it'll be, I mean, it would just be a, it would be a bad situation. But yeah, yeah, nearly a third of U.S. apartment renters didn't pay rent. I mean, I, I mean, look, I mean, I, when you have Marcus Lemonis, I mean, the guy went on CNBC and he was giving advice to small businesses. He was pretty much telling everybody, don't pay any bills that like don't pay rent, don't pay any bills mm. that you. Um, you know, I guess can't pay. Like it is time to hoard cash. Mm-hmm. You know, we see that going on with David Buster's. We see that going on with Cheesecake. I'm sure we'll see that going on more. I mean, Cheesecake was quick to mm-hmm. to do that. Um, you know, it, it, they just made the decision about three weeks ago, I guess. Yeah, but um, they were, but they that letter which you pointed out, yeah, was they sent it out publicly. Like what? A week and a half, two weeks later, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they were like quick to do that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that makes that makes sense. A lot of this makes sense that way. Uh, so apartment um, owners, companies in the public that own apartments and stuff, tend not to. They're, they're often REITs, but they tend not to be as leveraged as some other things. Uh, the ones that I think would have a really, really big problem would be if you have um, non-payment of uh, mortgages. Because those involve mortgage servicing companies, which are not in a position to uh, non-bank servicing companies. So those are not in a position to um, survive for any length of time. So I, I was trying to do an estimate of that. And the best estimate I could get for non-bank mortgage servicers, which are, I don't know, probably 19 out of 20 um, mortgages are serviced by someone else that this wouldn't be happening with. But, but maybe about 5% of mortgages would fall into this category. Um, so, But there's a bunch of publicly traded ones that do this. And my best estimate is that for every month that about a quarter of borrowers don't pay. So let's say if a quarter of their borrowers don't pay for a month, that will wipe out between one and two years of, of uh, normal net income. So if they had like three, year, uh, three months of non-payment of 25% of their um, mortgages, 
I would estimate that that will wipe out more than three years and probably closer to six years, so about half a decade. If they had to go six months, it would wipe out a decade of earnings. So they obviously don't have anywhere near that kind of um, liquidity or access to liquidity, which is totally different than banks and things like that. And it's also totally different than like uh, Freddie and Fannie that have a really big um, credit line with the treasury. So that's the one that I don't know. But I would expect that owners of apartments will last longer than mortgage servicers who will fail the fastest unless something's done to give them money really fast. Um, uh, apartment depends on the company, but some of the apartment companies are in a position where they could uh, get those payments eventually. The other thing is when we talk about these, we keep saying like um, that people are intending to defer these things to the future. So they won't pay them now, but in six months, they're going to pay that extra payment on their rent and stuff like that to make up to get back current. Um, and we'll see how that works and whether people can really come up with that money. Yeah, I was going to say, good luck. We'll, we'll see. I mean, they, they will get stimulus checks and things. But of course, the issue is, which I don't know how much we talked about this, but the issue that we talked about before is um, to be careful of in a situation like this is the only cash is cash. And the person who has cash has a big advantage over the person who doesn't. So you shouldn't assume that just because you're owed cash that you'll actually get it. You can hold on to cash that you have that you otherwise are promising to give out to someone. But in cases where, like I mentioned, like insurance things and stuff, um, it's just not the same thing. Or, or like we're talking about with tenants, where you, if you sued them and stuff, you'd eventually get the cash. That's not that helpful. Um, it's much easier to have cash on hand and just extend the terms of payment and stuff, which like some retailers have done, where they said, uh, normally we pay you on a 30 day after, uh, we receive the orders. We're now going to pay you on 90 days. And so that gives them more cash. Uh, it hurts the, their suppliers, but that sort of thing. So a, a lot of businesses that are based on, uh, tomorrow's cash flows and stuff have a problem if those don't come in. Got it. Uh, the next big news that came out yesterday, and I don't even know if it's big news, but it's interesting news. Uh, Seth Klarman said, I hate I hate these headlines so much. Yeah. Uh, it says Klarman made one billion hedging markets. He still lost money. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, this is such clickbait. Because um, I mean, I would consider this a successful hedge, right? Um, you know, he he hedged his fund, and his fund is only down eight percent in March, uh-huh. which I would consider a great hedge and great mm-hmm. performance given what's going on. Uh, it says Seth Klarman made $1 billion betting against stocks and corporate credit. That wasn't enough to prevent his hedge fund from losing money, yada, yada, yada. He's down 8%, so that is actually good, not what the narrative of, of this uh, article is. Um, and he has since, uh, or since February 24th, uh, deployed about $2.3 billion in cash into the market. And um, I thought that was interesting. And they are opening up their fund again, or they have opened mm-hmm. up their fund again, which, of course, they're um, you know known for not doing that. Last time their fund was open was 2011, and they currently manage about $29 billion, And they are raising capital again. So mm-hmm. they're looking to raise about another billion from existing investors. So you know, I guess that tells you one thing that there's gonna be a lot of uh, bargains and obviously everyone listening knows that but i just thought that was interesting a because the article title is terrible um but b because he opened up his fund again and is uh raising uh cash from new existing clients yeah and they do a lot of investments that are not just stocks i think they talk about yeah residential mortgage backed securities there um we haven't talked about on this podcast but i have noticed 
that um, I wouldn't be surprised if I already passed the point of the best prices you get on certain bonds and things like that. I, I've see, I saw some interesting things, um, some interesting preferred stock opportunities that have already recovered a lot. Uh, you might not get those yields again. So those sorts of things, maybe you got more opportunity, like in better junk bonds and things than you ever got in stocks uh, recently. Some of those things got very, very cheap. We were talking about a little bit with like how microcap value things are really cheap compared to the market. And you're seeing net nets and things like that reappear. Klarman is usually a little bit more of that kind of investor, a little bit more of the Ben Graham type investor. Not everything listed there falls in that category. They do mention, I guess, um, like like Alphabet and stuff like that. But uh, generally more of your uh, Ben Graham value investor than uh, Warren Buffett type. And definitely there's a lot more opportunities in quantitative value stuff now. And we're already seeing that. He's also known for pretty much routinely holding a lot of cash. And it even yeah. says right here that um, they, they're still 26% cash um, yes. after deploying capital and being at 31%. So they still have a ton of cash, and he's known mm -hmm. for doing that. Known for being very concentrated and then keeping a lot of cash on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. um, uh, next thing we can go over, so I sent out, for everyone listening, I sent out Jeff's Frost a singular diligence article today on Twitter. It's also in this email. The reason I did is because we, whenever we talk about banks, we always talk about frost. So I figured might as well just send it out to everyone if anyone is interested and wants to read on that. Uh, if you actually sign up on the premium side of focus compounding, you can get access to a bunch of singular diligence write-ups. Uh, but we gave this one out uh, today for free. Uh, somebody emailed you, Jeff, asking okay. about Transcat acquisition. I have QuickFS up because I think it'd be good for you to walk through this. Okay. Um, and he asked if Transcat's acquisition strategy, uh, if it's paying off yet. And he was saying that I've been looking at Transcat and I'm curious about how you would think about return invested capital. The company says all the right things and it seems from a 20,000 foot view that this would be an excellent niche. High switching costs, relationship based, quality, um, more important than price. The problem is that if you include goodwill in the return invested capital calculation, the returns are pretty mediocre. Uh, mediocre. He said uh, sub 10% in all years. And he was asking you about um, you know, return invested capital, uh, mm -hmm. especially for a company you know, that's going to pursue a roll-up type of strategy. And your answer was, we haven't seen it in the numbers yet, but I do expect the margins in Transcat service segment uh, are going to expand. So maybe tell me a little bit about that. I had the quick FS pulled up if you want to walk through that. Um, we get a lot of questions on how to account for return invested capital and how to think about return invested capital with companies that acquire a lot mm -hmm. of other businesses. So maybe just walk us through your thought process on that. Okay. So Transcat was written up on the website. If we go to the quick FS page for it, um, we can see that uh, the what we're talking about here with the return on invested capital, right? So the return on invested capital theoretically looks okay in the sense that it's probably not below, say, how much you could borrow from a bank at or something like that. But it is below the kinds of returns you would want of 10% or more for a uh, stock, you know, all stock um, backed kind of investment. Um, you can also see the return on equity isn't all that different, but a little bit higher. Um, so what Transcat is doing is a little difficult to value. So what it's doing is Transcat is a company that uh, basically sold and rented um, testing equipment, especially equipment that has to be calibrated uh, to all sorts of different industries around the US, uh, originally through like a catalog. 
but in particular to heavily regulated industries like life sciences and like aerospace. So a big part of this business is that things have to be correctly uh, calibrated, all the different testing equipment that they have. If you see the gross margin on the business is incredibly stable from the last 10 years, right? So you look at the gross margin, we're between like 23 to 25% or something, I'd say, is generally where that gross margin is. Very little variation. What's surprising about that is the business has changed dramatically, where 10 years ago, it was basically um, just selling and to some extent renting equipment. And now it's heavily uh, calibrating the equipment. They've invested a lot in um, organically and also in terms of acquisitions in acquiring things that will help them with calibration. And then also in adding employees and doing lots of other stuff, which is necessary for calibration stuff. This includes things like on-site calibration that they do. It includes having stuff that's really close so that you can have fast turnaround times on um, uh, calibrating equipment for customers. So if you look at like a map, which they'll show in their presentation and stuff, you have a lot more dots on that map now because you need to do that versus shipping out of like more of a centralized location when you're just shipping equipment. So because of that, it's really surprising. And that's the odd part here about it. If you look, their revenue growth has sometimes been pretty good, um, but their gross profit has only grown about as fast as their revenue. Now, services theoretically is a much higher gross margin business than selling this equipment. So we should be seeing expanding gross margins, and we're not yet. So because we're not seeing expanding gross margins, we're not seeing all that dramatic a change in operating margins. If you go really far back, you can see the effect of like the recession. But other than that, the gross margins haven't necessarily been uh, expanding that much. So that's a surprise. So my answer basically is, to be honest, uh, we are not seeing in the numbers yet, but I expect to see it in the numbers. I expect that you will see revenue growth that in the future is accompanied by really um, big expansions in things like gross margin and stuff, which result in them having higher returns on invested capital. So that's part of the issue of evaluating these acquisitions. If they've been buying things that already had a lot of earnings, and then you just buy them and you get a return on them, sort of the way Berkshire does, right? Berkshire buys something. It doesn't do anything in terms of synergies and stuff to put it into their business. You immediately see the return from that investment. Um, with something like Transcat, I think it's a should be viewed more as like equivalent to doing CapEx or something like that. It will take a while for us to see the results. And I think that there's a bunch of things with the business that are a little less efficient. Um, when you first bring people on and stuff, they hired a lot of different people for certain things. I think that new hires are not as efficient as people have been there a little while. I think that a lot of the stuff that we're seeing isn't going to be as efficient until you have some growth in those areas. So they were, before the coronavirus stuff happened, expecting that they could get to double-digit type growth in the service business and that their margins in that business would expand. And by my math, if both of those things happen, then you have fine returns on invested capital. So that's kind of what the issue is. It's that we're not seeing it in the numbers, but just based on how the business model works, I would expect that... Um, given a little time, you will see an improvement in those sorts of things. So it's something that can we prove it now that it was a good investment? No, but I would expect that to happen. And we just haven't seen it yet. We now won't see it because of the coronavirus. They've already warned that it's disrupting things, even in stuff like life sciences, which is medical stuff. So, um, you know, it'll, it's, it's hard to tell. And a lot of people have that attitude that if I'm not seeing the numbers now, then it's not going to happen. That might be true. Um, but the things that they say and that we would expect from having looked at the industry and how it works would suggest that these investments will pay off eventually just because of the way that a service type business like this normally works.
Mm-hmm. What is, and I'm kind of curious because just talking about this, I don't know why it reminded me of it. Uh, have you looked at Transdime at all recently? I haven't looked at Transdime recently. Um, have you ever had an opinion? Of, have you ever looked at it before? Because they have a lot of debt, right? It was that was more of a roll up type of play. And w- yeah. why I started thinking about them is, you know, because you're talking about how to account for acquisitions and stuff in the ROIC calculation. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, we wrote about a stock that's on the website and stuff that was acquired by Transdime. People have asked about Transdime many times. Transdime is just a. Uh, Transdime is honestly a business that for some, because of some of the things it's doing, I would avoid. There are other businesses like this and we don't talk about them on the podcast. They could be perfectly good companies, have great results, but the thing that they're doing worries me in terms of eventually they will run out of, um, uh, they'll run out of runway, whatever you want to call it for the kind of compounding that they're doing. And that will cause a big problem in terms of the stock dropping and, and other sorts of things. I have this attitude, even with some pretty well-respected companies, and I'm not going to name their names, that people like us compounders, that what I see them doing will work for a really long time, but I think it will uh, has the potential for investors to end badly. And it's just because I don't see a method by which they intend to slow down and um, stop doing what they're doing in an orderly sort of fashion. And we can see that just in terms of uh, how much they acquire how much debt they can take on things like that so are you logged into quick fs i am yeah so well let's start with just the revenue growth and stuff right so this revenue has been growing at what 20 percent a year um for the last 10 years so as we said that means that you're going to double every three to four years or something the actual industry that they're in some of the industries barely grow others might grow as fast as like six or seven percent a year they feed into stuff that has to do with all sorts of aerospace things um if we look we can see that their margins are incredibly high, right? So they have a 40% average EBIT margin, um, and it's still in that neighborhood now. Uh, EV to sales is a little bit higher even than that. So on like a leverage basis, you got an EV to sales of 5.3, not necessarily that cheap a stock. Uh, if we look at the balance sheet, though, if you could show me that, we'll get into what my concerns are with the business. So with this strategy, I should say. So the concerns with the strategy in general um, that you have to be careful with, and this doesn't apply to everything. We'd see with Berkshire Hathaway, this isn't happening. So the greatest danger with a business generally is very rapid growth in assets, um, just a very rapidly growing balance sheet. Uh, Growth in assets are generally associated with poor returns going forward. So that could be true organically or acquiring things. If we look at this business, those assets have been financed with long-term debt, right? So in 2009, they had 2.4 billion in assets and they had uh, 1.4 billion in long-term debt. Then as of this most recent year, they had 16 billion in total assets and they had 16 billion in long-term debt. So their entire growth in their balance sheet over that period of time, over those 10 years, in fact, a little bit more than it, has been uh, financed entirely with debt. That's kind of my concern there. If you look at retained earnings, right? So retained earnings in 2009 were positive, And then retained earnings declined over that time to be negative. That can happen if you pay out dividends or buy back stock. Uh, It particularly happens if you buy back stock. It tends to be more of the common way of doing it. But um, what that means is that the business is now funded without shareholder uh, equity. You can see that down there in terms of negative shareholder equity, right? So paid in capital, we see, which is different than um, retained earnings. If you kind of net those things out with some other stuff in there, which is the treasury stock, you'll notice that you get to shareholder equity. So shareholder equity 10 years ago was positive by about 800 million. 
it's now negative by, by about two point, uh, almost $3 billion. So what they've done is they've taken all the equity out of their balance sheet, leading to negative equity. They don't have book value at all. And they've replaced that with debt, huge amount of increase in debt. So if we look, just taking debt, um, and we can do the math on this, um, you have debt at $1.357 billion back there, right? Yep. So we take that and look at just what that means. So that is about, um, I would say that's about a, if I can do this, yeah, I would say it's What math are you doing so they know? Oh, so I'm just trying to estimate how fast they've grown their total debt over the last 10 years. I think it's about 27% is my best guess. So um, it's, it's more than 25%, I can tell that. Uh, I, and I think it's less than 30%. Those, those numbers are easy to do. Between that, I can't do the math without um, using a calculator or something. But um, So they've increased their debt by about that amount. If we then look at things like, let's, try to, let's go to the income statement, okay? So okay. if we go to the income statement, we can see their um, shares outstanding, right? So shares outstanding have stayed basically the same from 53 to 56. So if we now go back to the main page, the overview, right, we can now look at how they've grown certain things. So we can see that on a 10-year basis, right, they've grown earnings per share by 16%. That sounds good. Is 16% right? Yeah. So that sounds good over the last 10 years. And people get real worked up about that. Oh, this company's grown 16% a year or 70% a year of free cash flow. Let's say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, use free cash flow. Now, there was a tax cut in there and stuff, but we'll take it. And so they've grown 17% a year in terms of free cash flow. I said I think they've grown debt by 27% a year per share. So if they've grown debt per share by about 27% a year while they've grown free cash flow by 17% a year, um, I think a lot of businesses could do that, right? I mean, if you grow your balance sheet by 27% a year, shouldn't you grow your earnings by 17% a year unless your balance sheet is getting worse and worse returns on assets over time? Sure, yeah. Right. I mean, that's what it would seem to me. So now why is that happening? It's happening because they're acquiring the right things probably and doing the right things to what they acquire, but they have to pay a pretty high price to what they acquire. Um, and then we get into what they're doing. I think that they tend to like to buy companies that are one of the few sources, or in some cases, the sole source. I wrote like up a stock. Valiant. Uh, yeah, it has a comparison to the Valiant thing. But my concern is not that, and then they raise up the price and stuff. My concern is not that. It's what I just laid out here, which is the growth that you have there. If you look also, you see the return on invested capital, which we talked about. Obviously, the return on invested capital is poor um, because in that, factors in the, um, that factors in the stuff that has to do with the goodwill, right? So if you look at the bottom line, return on invested capital, it's never really, it, it did briefly, hit about a 10% return. Um, that means that you have a problem there. So you're using all debt. And then it's a question of what that debt costs. Now, over the last 10 years, that debt has cost very little. So you notice the balance sheet has no equity on it. So it's a 100% finance with debt. And then when you have that 100% financing with debt, the balance sheet, you're getting returns that look okay in the sense that return on invested capital, if you look at that bottom line, is higher than what your um, creditors are taking it from you. So as long as you do that, as long as that spread stays, you can grow as big as you want um, if you're allowed to. Uh, by creditors if they they allow you to pay rates that low um, and if they continue to allow you to borrow because the idea is that if you have that spread it's just like a bank if you have a spread over that then everything that you do in adding more debt to your balance sheet does add value so if you're borrowing at four percent and reinvesting at seven six and a half seven eight percent including goodwill then by you know making six to eight percent while borrowing at four percent you continually are improving your results and you get things like a higher 
earnings per share number and a higher free cash flow number. But as we saw, that comes with the price of a lot of debt there. So if we can just go to the balance sheet again, yep. I can do this math for you here to give you some of my concerns. So if we look at the long-term debt, we'll just take long-term debt, forget about things like, so long-term debt is about 16.5 billion. They actually also have short-term debt of about 430 million, which added to that gets you to about 17 billion. So if we take that and then we go to the income statement, I think that we had, is it, do they have 58 million shares outstanding? Something like that? How many did they have? 56 standing? 56, yep. Okay, so they have 56 outstanding. So now we go back to the overview, right? So let's look at the overview. What do they have in earnings per share this year? Um, $13.84. Right. And th- their high was uh, 16 or something like that. So if we take an average of a few years, though, it's not that as great. But so they would have about $30 a share in um, debt that they have, right, with that. So, um, uh, excuse me, sorry, uh, $300 a share in debt. Um, so if we look at that math, um, you have a bit of a problem, right? So um, j- just to give an example, right? Let, we can use like the market cap, right? So the market cap as of today is about 16 billion? 16.4 okay. billion, yep. All right, so we know that the debt is a little bit more than that. So I said there's no shareholders equity. Now there's no shareholders equity in terms of book value of equity, but another way to do it for enterprise value purposes and things like that is to look at both of them. And this is the part that gets a little concerning for a creditor. And I don't know all the situation all the creditors in Transdime, but your um, one calculation that you can do as a creditor is to think about how much uh, protection I have in front of me in the terms of like a buffer. So if, say, you're investing in a bank or something and you're, um, you're looking at, say, the preferred stock or whatever, you can say, well, how much equity is there in front of me? Well, in this case, we can do something like that. We can say, well, I'm a creditor of Transdime. How much um, common stock equity is there ahead of me? Well, there's actually now less common stock equity at market value then there is um, debt. So the capital structure adjusted for market values means that most of it is debt. And of course, without using market values, the equity is carried at no book value. Um, So what that means is that I might have the market's valuing the portion of the company that is in front of me um, in terms of taking losses at less than my uh, debt is if it was all to be uh, eventually worth par, right? So that's a bit of a concern. And if you look, these numbers aren't cheap either. So the best number that we could use probably is EV to sales. EV to sales is the best. So it's the most um, uh, normalized for different things about a cycle. So going into this, because these are lagging numbers, the EV to sales was about 5.3, okay? now. The free cash flow number that we see is what, about 21%? Now, that's unfair in terms of the long-term pass. That's unfair because the company um, now has pays less in taxes. So let's say it's more like 25% or something. But if it's 25% free cash flow is how much you convert of your sales, and the enterprise value of sales is over five times, right? Then what we're talking about still is you're paying over 20 times um, free cash flow on a, a, a bit more than that on a totally all-in basis of the debt and the equity. It's still about 20 times, so about 5%. That doesn't take into account the fact that Transdime will have problems this year, because if we look at the business description, if you click that, um, you can see what the business does. So it supplies aircraft components and things like that. Obviously, there's no need for aircraft components um, this year. So that's a big problem. And in addition to there not being a need for it, also, if you're doing certain things in terms of the supply chain and stuff, there may even be a problem where even if it's needed, uh, being able to get things from different places and to the people who need it uh, just isn't going to 
be that likely this year. It's a, it's one of the most disrupted things in the um, economy right now. There's a reason why like Boeing needs a big bailout and wants a bailout for all its suppliers and everyone in the industry needs this. So because of that, you're going to have additional problems this year and stresses and stuff from that. It could even proceed beyond this one year. That's not factored into anything I just said. So if you look and let's say, like, for instance, let's say you replaced all of um, Transdime's equity with debt or something, right? So instead you said, could this company take, that's another way of looking at how safe a company is, is could it take, instead of having a balance, instead of having a, at market values about $17 billion in debt and $17 billion in equity, could it just have $34 billion in debt? What would that look like? What it would look like, unfortunately, is that if they used all their free cash flow and stuff, they'd only be able to pay about 5% in a normal year of that total enterprise value. And yet we know that people are probably going to want more than 5%, I would guess, on their, on their debt. Uh, obvious, I mean, the, the, so that's why the shareholders are taking the brunt of it right now, because they're in front that way. So my concern, though, with Transdime was never about something like this happening. This is just what happened. My concern, if we look, if we go back to the cash flow statement, we might be able to see this, is that what happens, and I talked about this a little bit with a company called Middleby, which is, um, uh, wrote up, uh, went up, I guess, today or something on the um, website, which is uh, kitchen equipment for fast food. And it's going to have trouble this year. But again, that's not my concern. My concern was what they were doing in terms of acquisitions. So let's look at acquisitions here, right? So if we look at acquisitions, I've been talking about free cash flow, right? But there is no free cash flow at Transdime. All of it goes into acquisitions. Um, th they end up taking all of that. So if you look, you look at the cash flow from operations number, and then you ask, is the cash flow from operations number greater than the acquisitions number? And how often does that, is that the case? Let's look. Um, do I see a couple years where it happens? Uh, I see, well, that not one's kind the, of even. Yeah, okay. not for, I 2014, mean, yeah. 2014, they did it. Um, they did it in 2017, okay, and then they did it in 2018. So in three of the last 10 years, they actually could have self-financed their acquisition machine. Without that, they couldn't have, and they needed to access debt and things like that. Um, and in addition to that, there were some years that were very, very big. My biggest concern, though, comes with the size at the end here. So if we do the math, if they're basically financing themselves from a book value basis just with debt, it's pretty simple. To grow by the amount that they need to, you just take the cash flow from operations plus the amount of debt they would need to have and assume that that's the amount of debt they will try to grow by to keep hitting their targets. So what I mean by that is, let's say their debt um, was $17 billion at the end of last year. Okay, so $17 billion. You're trying to hit double-digit earnings for share growth. And we've seen the company's not capable, as far as we can tell, of growing EPS faster than debt. Debt grows faster than EPS. So for that reason, if we're a company that's targeting 10% plus growth in EPS, we know that we have to grow our debt by at least 10% each year for this machine to keep going. Well, a 10% growth rate would mean that we need to do about 1.7 billion, probably more like 2 billion, in acquisitions each year from now on. So we have to average about 2 billion acquisitions. Now our cash flow from operations, this is not even free cash flow because I'm not counting CapEx, which is very minor at this company, but our cash flow from operations, you'll notice, is about, what, a billion in the last few years? Mm -hmm. So we need to borrow a billion dollars a year to keep this thing going, right? Yes. So that's what I don't like about it. And not only do you have to borrow a billion a year, but you have to borrow a billion a year and it, the actual number is a billion times 1.1 to the whatever power of how far you want to grow this thing. So it's actually 1 billion times 1.1 to the 10th power to no, decide what they have to borrow in 2030. So this happens all the time. There are companies like this in the 1960s that were very popular. I don't like them. 
Um, there are other companies that are much better respected that do the exact same thing. And again, I'm not going to name them, but there's a reason why people propose those companies to me. I say, no, I'm not going to write them up and I'm not going to talk about them because while I think it works really well for a time, unless the company shows the ability to stop growing, um, it will end badly at the point where the growth really does end. I mean, isn't it kind of, I mean, does that ever happen where they stop growing? Because either way, it's like you're on that, that roller or that, that treadmill, you know? Well, Teledyne. So Teledyne did. So Teledyne is the great example of that. They did a complete uh, 180. They acquired everything using stock and stuff. And they stopped and they bought back their own shares. Uh, and, and that's Henry Singleton. So um, that's the great example of that. They were a company set up just like all the other companies of that time that did all these acquisitions and grew at incredibly fast rate. They were a high tech kind of thing. And then they said no. And they turned around and stopped doing it. Um, a lot of people compare this to something like Berkshire or something. Berkshire doesn't do this. Berkshire buys a bunch of stuff, writes a bunch of premiums, and then when the market doesn't look the way they want it to look, they stop. I mean, they just hoard cash for long periods of time. They, they write premiums that are way below what they theoretically are capable of and things like that. So it's very different from a company that tries to consistently hit this growth through acquisitions. And so uh, when people ask about things like serial acquires and stuff, I like certain serial acquires. I've written about them in advertising agencies and things like that. But none of those are the times that I wrote about them ever were targeting things like, let's try to keep growing at 10% a year or something. You see the biggest issue here, just if we can just go to that balance sheet one more time. If you go to the balance sheet of Transdyne, that's the one that's really the concern here. Because that kind of phenomenal growth in that, and it's very easy to see this if you just look at the 10-year numbers, right? That's insane amount of growth in the assets. The assets there, the total balance sheet went from $2 billion to something like $16 billion. And again, this would happen with a lot of other companies. If we actually, if we can compare um, uh, the same sort of thing as that stock that I was talking about. So if you type in MIDD, we can see it because this is another stock that's kind of popular in certain respects, but I have some concerns with. And just to give you an example, uh, MIDD, yeah. Yep, yep, sorry. So this company... Uh, we can see great growth, right? And I should also point out this company has wow. been one of the best performing companies over the last 20 years, right? Amazing performance. And from about some point in the later 1990s to today, it compounded at 20 to 30% a year over many different time periods. Amazing stock. But what happens is sometimes I see an amazing stock and I go, I don't really want to be part of that. And what they were doing, I think, made a ton of sense originally when they started doing it. And if we go back 20 years, I think the economics of it were amazing. And then I think it started to decline. And it has certain comparisons here with me with Transdyne. Okay. So if we look, we'll see some things happening here. One, at least their return on invested capital started out way higher than Transdyne because they were much less far along. This is a much smaller company than something like Transdyne. But we also see that return on invested capital it did start to decline there. Um, and we look at their growth rates, right? So they have tremendous growth rates, but they're interesting because we know that they serve basically fast food companies, Olive Garden, things like that. It's a good business. I like the business. I like the brands that they have. They're some of the best in the industry. There's a couple other companies that are part of conglomerates that have similar tremendous brands. brands. I, I love the brands that they have. No, to give you an idea of who they serve and stuff, just so you know, they are companies like, you know, um, Wendy's, Olive Garden, their, their stuff would be used in also places that makes um, that big things in-house, whether that's Costco and Walmart and stuff like that is very safe, normally kind of thing. Not a lot of aftermarket uh, sales and stuff, but in general, very safe. Now they're going to have a terrible time this year. Again, with Transdime and Middleby both, it's not about this year. If I would have picked many stocks that I like a lot. I could have picked theme parks up here and said, oh, they're wonderful. They're going to have a terrible year. That's not it. That's not my problem. That's my problem, which we'll see here, 
is if you look at their growth rates, right, they have this growth rate of like 17%, 16% in revenue. They have growth rates of like 19% in EPS. Now, if we go to the balance sheet again, so I can look at the 10-year numbers there, we can get some ideas of my concerns with this company. So this company grew from total assets, again, at what is that, $800 million 10 years ago to about yep. $5 billion today, right? So that number is obviously not as severe as Transdime. But if we look at that, I would say that they went from um, they went clo- between 15 and 20 uh, percent. So again, I would need a calculator, but let's call it 17 percent or something, right? So they grew their assets by like 17 percent. The retained earnings, though, here is different, right? They did retain earnings. And this is one thing that gives me a little more faith with them, with Middleby in the long run, than it does with Transdime. If we go back to Transdime, something happened with Transdime that really deeply concerned me. And if we type in their balance sheet, we'll, okay, so their balance sheet is this incredibly fast-growing company, right? Yeah. And QuickFS lets you see some of these numbers also. So for instance, there's a number that, um, okay, so they have these retained earnings, right? And then the retained earnings start turning negative that you can see there, right? So the retained earnings turn significantly negative. And we see some growth in things like treasury stock. So they were buying back stock, right? But we also see things if we go to the cash flow statement now, okay? Um, they look at the 10-year cash flow statement about what's happening here. So one of the things that happens is you have these large dividends, cash paid for dividends in the middle of that decade. And then you have dividends again. Now, this is a company that already cannot self-finance. It needs access to debt to be able to do these acquisitions. And there are other companies like this. When people ask sometimes why I don't like a certain REIT or something, I won't say why, but it's because they need access to public markets just to be able to keep things going because they want to pay out more in dividends and grow. And the only way to grow while paying out dividends is to either issue more stock or issue more debt or issue more preferred stock or whatever. So here we have a company that, while doing all of this, decided to pay out dividends and really significant dividends at a time that causes kind of a problem from a, a debt perspective. I, if we go to key ratios, maybe we can see some of what I'm talking about. So the, I don't know why you paid out those large dividends, for instance. Um, so if we look at the key ratios there of some of them, we see things like debt to equity, right? So, or let's use debt to assets because it'll at least stay positive. Um, so yeah, it's only one here that'll stay positive because the equity stuff will go down, right? So the debt to assets, you start out at already not a low number. So to give you an idea, um, I often talk about debt to equity. For Transdime, we can't even really use that number. It's too high. We have to talk in terms of debt to assets. So their debt to their assets start out there, right? And then they continually rise over time so that the entire period that we have here, they have about as much debt as assets, right? And we saw that before. If we go to the balance sheet just one more time to give you an idea of how dramatic this is, um, we can just look at the most recent year that we have here, right? So let's just look at the balance sheet. So you have a balance sheet that's about $16 billion balance sheet, right? Now, the liabilities on that balance sheet are greater than the assets. That's very weird. We almost never see that. I've seen some companies do it that are very intangible heavy. They buy back their own stock. But they're never companies that increase their assets like this. So when people ask me, like, um, I bought into a stock IMS Health when it had a negative equity, right? But it was not growing its assets at all. Um, I talked before years ago about another company that isn't a public anymore, but um, Dun & Bradstreet. Again, asset growth of low, low percentage in the single digits. If you're growing zero, one, two, three percent, it makes sense in that kind of slow growth business to buy back your own stock. But what doesn't make sense to me is using large amounts of debt to rapidly grow your asset base. And I think that almost always ends badly. If we look at their balance sheet, then we can see things like total current assets, right? 
So one thing that I do often is to look at the liquidity position of a company, like I'll be talking about Hamilton Beach or about Haynes Brands or about whatever and saying how strong is their position when I do a write-up. I compare their total current assets to not their total current liabilities, but their total liabilities. So if you notice, the liquidity position of Transdime is theoretically good because the company doesn't borrow over short periods of time ever. It has everything in long-term debt. But as a result, it ends up with liquidity issues like it has this way of, um, I shouldn't say liquidity issues, issues of too much debt. So the total current assets that you have are only about um, one-fourth of your total liability. So your total liabilities are like four times your current assets. That's very concerning because on a net basis, it means you're supporting your entire actual operations just with long-term debt. Now, the idea, of course, is to use very long-term debt. But what it means is this is all just a product of financial engineering. There's nothing else going on here. What you're seeing is large amounts of long-term debt. If the long-term debt that you use is very long-term, so you don't have to pay it in a short period, then you don't have liquidity problems with it. You have a billion or two billion or whatever in cash on hand, and yet you don't have a billion or two billion or whatever of debt due anytime soon. Then you're always in a sufficient liquidity position. And then you just get this long-term debt. And if you borrow at 5% and your acquisitions are at 6 to 8% or whatever over time, then you are creating value. And as long as that keeps going on, you can keep creating value. My problem is that if we do the math on how big they were 10 years ago versus how big they are today versus how big they would have to be in another 10 years, um, they increased by, you know, uh, let's say even if they slowed down, even if you slowed down significantly from what you did this last 10 years, this company, for people to think that it's going to grow like it has been, is on pace to grow about five times or something it would have to, and that would be slower than it did last time. It's to grow its balance sheet. It uses all debt. So that means that you have to go from having debt of, in this case, like 16 billion to having debt that you would need, what, about 80 billion total in debt. So you have to wow. have new debt of like 64 billion over the next 10 years. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's sustainable. Um, it just depends on how long the market lets it happen. But this is the kind of thing that you see just in financial history all the time. Companies do this kind of thing. And it works amazingly for a really long time until it doesn't. And the model isn't necessarily disastrous. But I never believe that the people driving the business are willing to slow down. <laughs> I believe that they will keep trying to hit these sorts of targets. And if you do that, if you keep trying to grow something this fast, when it gets 10 times, 20 times, whatever the size it was originally, you can't do it. It's too big. The acquisitions are too big you need to do. I mean, doesn't it almost really, though, become a treadmill? Because if you're going to the capital markets, either to, I mean, these guys aren't issuing shares, as we saw, but raise debt. I mean, you need a stock price that continues to go up, right? So it's like, at what point do you actually stop? Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. And, and of course, there's no there's no understanding. You've read the Frackers book, right? That we've ch yeah. chatted about. I mean, it's it's just like the oil industry, right? It's like Ches uh, Chesapeake Energy. It's you're on that that roller coaster or that treadmill where it's like, well, you need the capital markets. Well, you need your stock price to go back up. Like, let's keep going. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the thing with Transdime, of course, is we don't know what the real appetite is for the equity if they were in a more stable position. I think the entire appetite for the equity, which is big, even today, the equity still has a value. It's not that cheap. It still has a value that is about as much as the face value of the debt, which probably gives the bondholders a lot of um, uh, comfort historically that you have all this stock in front of you in terms of market value, that if they did issue stock or whatever might have to happen, uh, there, there's an ability to raise a lot of money that way. Um, I just think that 
everyone who's in transdime is probably in it because it's a compounder. And so the problem is what happens if you have some years where instead of growing 20% a year, you grow at like 0% a year and you fix up your balance sheet and stuff like that. Um, and even just from that perspective, like here's the really, really big one. And, and this is what I use, not EV to EBITDA and things like that. I look at um, their debt situation, right? So their debt situation is uh, 16 billion. We said they have a billion and a half or something in cash. Let's give them credit for that. Let's say it's 15 billion in debt. Nice round number. If we go back to the cash flow statement, this is the part that really deeply concerns me. So the cash flow statement, their cash flow from operations of their best ever year, right, was we'll use the trailing 12 months, that was their best ever, is uh, 1.1 uh, billion. And then they don't spend much on CapEx. So I will just ignore it. I'll just say that, um, well, it was about 100 million. So let's use that. So about 100 million. So their free cash flow in their best year free cash flow, we'll assume they can keep repeating that if they were in a steady state, if they stopped growing, they would be able to have cash free cash flow of a billion. Okay. Now, 15 billion in debt is 15 years of free cash flow. Mm-hmm. Why didn't anyone ever let you borrow 15 years of free cash flow? That's the part about this that baffles me. And from the stockholder's perspective, I can understand why shareholders bought into this, okay? Shareholders, it makes sense. You have tremendous upside potential. If you lent this company money, your potential is just that you'll get paid back the face value plus the interest that you get. That's it. And that's the part that always baffles me in these credit expansions that you have is not what the shareholders do. They could see infinite upside. There's not infinite upside in the debt. So how did you let a company get 15 times levered up in terms of debt versus their free cash flow generating abilities. How do you ever get out of a situation where you have 15 times, 15 years of debt? How do you get out of that? What do they usually do? Uh, they borrow more. I mean, we, <laughs> so, so if we go, you can see, um, from, you can see uh, net issuance of debt, right? So look at net issuance of debt, 2010, and then move your eye across, right? Yeah. So they, uh, no, it went up from there. So Oops, sorry. they, yep. yeah. So, okay. So here's what they borrowed. So they borrowed in 2011, they borrowed 1.2 billion. Then 2013, 2014, 2016, 2017, and 2018, and 2019, they borrowed billions. Except for like two years, they borrowed more in debt than they are capable of earning free cash flow now. If you look, there's very, very few years. I'm trying to find any years here. I'm not finding them. Still not finding them. Uh, yeah, I don't see any. I could be wrong. I don't see a single year where their cash flow from our operations exceeded their net issuance of debt. Meaning the business was funded more by debt than cash flow from operations in every single year. Yes. I mean, so that kind of thing is, just, and, and it works. That's why you do it. Of course mm-hmm. it works because you're borrowing at incredibly low amounts. And to some extent, the stock isn't even really worried about the debt. I mean, if we look, I don't know, okay, if we go to key ratios and stuff, do we have any price things from the past? Let's Let me see, see if we can get this. So um, to give you an idea of valuation metrics, yeah, this is go. useful. So look at the PE ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Or look at the price to sales. Let's use the PE ratio, right? So see how high off. it is? Mm-hmm. See how high it is? So of course, when your PE ratio is like that, it's not responding at all to the fact that you have all this debt. It's not at all concerned it's about just the debt. It's just seeing the ratio. EPS growth. Yeah. Even if we do something like EBITDA, so we'll use the EBITDA because people complain that I use free cash flow and stuff, which isn't the correct measure that you're supposed to use for um, debt. It's supposed to be EBITDA, right? So we can see they went from 7.243 to 38.24. Let's call it five times. They increased their EBITDA five times over 10 years. But then if we look at the amount of debt that we have, we remember what they did there um, on the balance sheet. We can see that. We can see that they grew the amount of debt 
by um, uh, long-term debt grew from about 1.3 to about six, so about 10 times. So you grew your debt um, about two times on average faster than you grew your EBITDA. So the entire 10 years, you were increasing your debt to EBITDA ratio the whole way through. And, you know, it's because we had a 10, 11 year bull market and especially a real bull market in like credit stuff and riskier credits. And so people were just willing to lend a lot. And this happens all the time. Um, This happened in the 1920s. It happened in all sorts of different periods. It's not unusual. So you have these credit expansions that are really big and that lead to some weird outcomes like this one, um, which is baffling to me how it got that bad. But that's why if you ask like why I don't talk about certain stocks and stuff, because I don't like the direction that they're headed in with the strategy that they're using. And I think it's, uh, you know, um, a, a disturbing one that way. Even things like, like the dividend thing is really worrying to me. Because if you remember, it's sort of like the book, um, uh, When Genius Failed, right? Yeah. Uh, long-term mm-hmm. capital management. One yeah. of the weird things that they did is they basically cashed out outside partners. And uh, by doing so, they did it in a way in which they increased their leverage even further. And... Transdime over the last 10 years, just if you look at the financials, I'm not reading the earnings calls that the company has and reading their presentations and stuff, has a 10-year a history of behavior in terms of debt, which seems reckless. And it seems reckless in terms of even how they use it at certain times that goes beyond what was necessary, um, laying on even more debt. So it seems like their whole business model is based on that idea. And they have this faith that they'll be able to access credit market stuff for a really long time. And again, their liquidity position is not bad. Uh, we just looked at that. They're, they've been very careful to manage their liquidity situation. But I, to me, it doesn't matter if you manage your liquidity position that well. You could have all the liquidity in the world if you have 15 years of debt um, on your balance sheet. Uh, that's too much. And, uh, and if all companies did like what Transdime did, we would be in an incredible depression. <laughs> because yeah. that is what causes depressions. Because what you have to do is you have to cut back on everything just to be able to service that. So, I mean, it's very hard to service debt that is 15 times your free cash flow. It's just like impossible. And um, it's possible for a time while you can get more debt always. And it's possible if rates stay very, very low for a time, but it just, it doesn't work out in the long run. So at some point you have to shrink down and stuff. At some point you have to stop growing and that can happen catastrophically or it can happen through like 10 years of or more. I mean, aren't they normally forced to stop growing and everything? So catastrophically, isn't that normally the situation? It can be catastrophically, but in some cases it's not. Uh, we talk, we've talked uh, off air a lot about Japan and stuff. If uh, you look at some of the Japanese net nets and stuff I bought, they didn't fail catastrophically in the 1990s. They had way too much debt and they just paid down their debt for uh, 20 over 20 years. They just paid their debt down for 20 years. And then they started to build up net cash and stuff. So there were Japanese companies that just were so over indebted that they just said, okay, we're not putting, sending anything out to shareholders for a decade or two or so. Everything just goes to paying down our debt. Eventually, we'll get out of this. We'll survive. And they did. Um, but obviously, they didn't grow for 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. So it can happen either way. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, Jeff, we just came up on an hour. That was uh, that was a really good job. Good job out of you, Jeff. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. So we have a new schedule for the podcast. We are going to uh, pull back. We're going to do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then I'm going to fill in uh, Tuesday and Thursday with just some other YouTube videos. Uh, so make sure you head over to YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Good job out of you today, Jeff. We hope everyone has a great day and we will see you in tomorrow's Pod, or Friday's podcast. What's today's date? <laughs> today's, I'm oh, losing track of everything. What's Wednesday. Wednesday? So Friday, well, even though the market's closed Friday. Um, do you still want to film a podcast on Friday, Jeff? 
Charlotte's Needle Podcast. Yeah. On Good Friday. Perfect. Well, we hope everyone has a great day and we will see you on Friday.